Our first speaker today is uh, Dr. Jeff Lennox, who just introduced himself. Um, and, and he's um, obviously here at Atlanta, professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and uh, works out of Grady as well as Emory. And um, he's going to give us the update on the CROI meeting in, uh, in Boston last week. And that's a yeoman's job is to try to figure out what was key there and then get slides together and get it here. So we're very pleased that Jeff has done that for us. So welcome. Thank you, Mike. So these are my disclosures. And these are the learning objectives, learning about antiviral strategies and organ disease and management and diagnosis of opportunistic infections. So before I go on, I would like to say a couple of things. There were over 60 hours of oral scientific presentations. And I don't think I can summarize all 60 hours in the next 30 minutes. So obviously, these highlights are my own highlights. And somebody else may feel differently. If you would like to view the CROI, you can go online and watch all of the oral presentations and look at all of the posters. It's free and available on the web at the Retro Conference website. And I highly encourage you, if you want to get more information than I'm giving, that you should go to the website. And you can listen and watch these slides. It's a very useful thing. So the first part I'm going to talk about is epidemiology highlights. And there was a lot of talk around this presentation at Retrovirus. You know, the CDC has been tracking a lot of statistics around HIV for very many years. And there are a little over half of the states have been reporting the sequence data from the genotypes that they send out on newly diagnosed people. And this is now being collected as part of the surveillance data. So the CDC very cleverly uses that sequence data and looks for relatedness between newly diagnosed individuals and tried to determine whether there are clusters of transmission that are going on in these 26 states and territories. They analyzed over 50,000 sequences from a little bit over a two and a half year period. So that's a lot of newly diagnosed people. But you know, every year we have about 50,000 in one year. So obviously, they're only catching less than half the states. And you can see from the table that the identified distinct clusters where people were all getting infected in a relatively short period of time with related viruses. And you can see that in these clusters, there's a much higher transmission rate, about 44 transmissions per 100 patient years. And the age is very young, less than 30, 70%. And 83% of them were MSM. When you look at the non-clustered cases, obviously they were older, less transmissions, and uh, less MSM. So the interesting thing, however, is that the vast majority of the cases were non-clustered. So although identifying the clusters gives you the opportunity to intervene and try and break that transmission cycle, it's still not going to give you the data that you need to address the vast majority of the new infections. But it is a potentially a new approach. Another thing that's been debatable for several years is whether pregnancy might increase your risk for HIV transmission. There have been various cohort studies that have indicated perhaps it does and perhaps it doesn't. This one was a large analysis of almost 3,000 African women 
who were enrolled in two different studies over the period of several years, one of which was to look at acyclovir to help prevent HIV, and another one was to look at PrEP. And they knew that the husbands were HIV, or their male partners, I should say, were HIV positive, and that there was some degree of unprotected sex going on in many of the partnerships. So what they did is they looked at women who were in a pregnant state, postpartum state, non-pregnant or postpartum, and then they divided up by early pregnancy, which was before 14 weeks, and late pregnancy, which was after 14 weeks. Now, in the period prior to the onset of pregnancy, the mean baseline sex acts per month was about 40, and they had almost 700 pregnancies that they studied. And what you can see here in the green bar, the number of condomless sex acts per month when they were non-pregnant was relatively low, and in early pregnant was high, which explains why they're in early pregnancy. So later in pregnancy, women were more likely to start using condoms again, and again to continue them in the postpartum era. If you look at the relative risk for HIV transmission, you see a fairly striking increase of relative risk in late pregnancy and the postpartum, and also statistically significant in the early pregnancy. So it did appear that although condomless sex was decreasing, women's risk of acquiring HIV was actually increasing during pregnancy. And there are biologic reasons to postulate that might increase a woman's risk for HIV transmission. So it appears that the early pregnancy and the postpartum period are opportune times to try and intervene with PrEP condom education, and also to get the male partners on antiretroviral therapy so that they're less likely to transmit. Now turning to antiretroviral therapy, Dr. Gandhi is going to cover all of the new drugs and new agents, although I um, did put a little bit in here about Bictegravir. So the first case, 38-year-old male who's on Dolutegravir, Bactivir 3TC for two years. His HIV RNA is undetectable. Baseline genotype showed no mutations. He's been unable to stop smoking and now has hypertension. So obviously some cardiac risk factors have developed. Would you recommend, do not change the ART, just double the efforts, replace Dolutegravir with Abacavir 3TC with TAF-FTC, change to BIC TAF-FTC, or change to dolutegravir rilpivirine? Go ahead and answer. And these are one, two, three, four, five. Sorry, I don't, sorry the numbers don't appear here. Okay, thank you. That was a thrilling question. Um, did you guys see the answers? I can't see them from up here. Oh, okay. It looks like the majority would say, don't change his antiretroviral therapy, treat the hypertension, and redouble the efforts at smoking cessation. And I put up options, all of which have pluses and minuses and could be defended. So obviously not all of you are wrong. Um, but I do want to present you some uh, new data from the retrovirus. One is switching people off of dolutegravir and abacavir and 3TC to bictegravir, TAF, and FTC. 
So obviously you're changing a one pill once a day regimen to another one pill once a day regimen. This study, you can see the design here, took suppressed patients who had no chronic active hepatitis B, good GFR, and randomized them to switch to the BIC-TAF FTC or continue on the dolitegravir, abacavir 3TC. And here's what the results showed. So in both arms, you had uh, within the non-inferiority margin of 4%, continued suppression of viral load. There was no difference. The baseline GFR remained around where it was at baseline as you followed patients on study. Bone mineral density changes, hip mineral density changes were non-statistically significantly different, which makes sense since they were going from a back of ear to TAF. There was no new resistance. And as you would expect, when changing anybody to a new regimen, there was more cases of people who, did, who reported adverse events in those who were changed to the new regimen than who continued the old regimen. But out of 282 people, it was only six. So most people tolerated the change very well. So the question would be, well, why change? You know, is abacavir really um, causing a, an increased cardiac risk? You know, I think most people are aware of the data back and forth showing that yes, it does, no, it doesn't, that's come from various groups. Now, one thing that was reported at the conference, which was new information, is looking at the effect of, of abacavir on platelet aggregation. And platelet aggregation is a fairly standardized test that can be measured in a, a couple of different ways as a response to collagen or as a response to ADP. And what these investigators did is they took 61 patients who were on a switch study and who were either continue their abacavir 3TC or switch to the TAP FTC. It was not the same study, but was another one sponsored by Gilead. And they measured platelet aggregation. Now, if you look on the left side, you see platelet reactivity in response to collagen. And what you can see is that the patients who were switched to TAF FTC had an increase in reactivity, which is associated with a decrease in aggregation. I know that seems backwards, but in this assay, more activity means decreased platelet stickiness uh, by the response to collagen. However, when you look at the response to ADP, there was a statistically significant difference between the groups, but I think you can see that there was really no change in either group. So there really wasn't a significant difference in the ADP response. Now, what does all this mean? Well, if you look at the Framingham study, which is the study that a lot of our cardiovascular risk is based on, the aggregation in response to ADP was highly predictive of cardiovascular disease, whereas in response to collagen, it was not predictive at all. So my takeaway from this was that we still don't know if abacavir is associated with cardiovascular disease for sure, and I don't think that they really established, because they didn't show the ADP response was different, that there was any difference based on this platelet aggregation. So I'm presuming this, what I consider a negative result, because a lot of the takeaways from the CROI reported it as this significant association. And I think that you really need more information about the Framingham study to really interpret it in the correct context. Now, another study that was done um, was looking at 
darunavir, ritonavir plus 3TC, so two drug therapy versus three drug therapy. This was the Andes study. It's a relatively small group in Argentina looking at initial therapy of two drugs versus three drugs, and they presented their 48-week data. And you can see that about a quarter of the patients had high viral loads at baseline, and despite this, treating them with just two drugs, dolutegravir and 3TC, there was no statistical difference between two drugs versus three drugs in this one non-randomized observational, well, prospective observational trial. Now, VEEV has two large studies going on which should be completed this summer with a similar design looking at dolutegravir 3TC as initial therapy. And the ACTG also did a two drug versus three drug, well actually just, it was a single arm study, two drug therapy for initial treatment. And so I think um, based on those results and these results and then the two big randomized studies this summer, we may see a paradigm shift in our approach to initial treatment or depending on the results, we may not change anything. So stay tuned. Now there's been a lot of talk about same-day antiretroviral trials or therapy. Uh, the experience in San Francisco and other places is positive, getting more people on therapy, but there's not been a real randomized study before this one that was reported. This was based in rural Lesotho, where they actually went out to people's homes and tested everybody in the household who had agreed to be tested, and then those that were positive, they gave them a 30-day supply on the spot of antiretroviral therapy, and then did their best to get them linked into the clinic. And there were no labs. You know, they didn't know if their creatinine was, you know, 10 or you know, anything else, no genotype. They just gave them a 30-day supply of antiviral therapy. And you can see in the table, there was a pretty striking difference in the number of people who were on treatment and linked after three months. In the usual care arm, which was a randomized study, it was about 43%. And just giving people their antiretroviral therapy on the day they were diagnosed got that up to nearly 70%. So it encouraged people to come into clinic, get engaged in care. Now the really sobering thing, I mean there was a statistically significant difference at same day treatment at 12 months, the percent that were suppressed increased to 50%. But we're not gonna get to our goals if 50% of people who are given a 30 day supply are still not suppressed at 12 months. So we still have a long way to go in this setting and I think in a lot of other settings to try and get that up closer to the 90% that Dr. Del Rio is gonna be talking about later. Now, since I was talking about adherence and compliance, there was an interesting study from the ACTG 5257 trying to see if hair levels might be a better measure of, of adherence than plasma levels. We all know that patient self-report is fraught with uh, overestimation. Uh, most people in the ACTG 5257, the median level of reported adherence was like 98%. You know, everybody was always taking their therapy all the time. So what they did is they took hair and they looked at drug levels in the hair and then they split it up into tertiles of the highest, medium, and lowest. And I think you can see that for the first time in a randomized study that hair levels were highly predictive, particularly the lower your hair level, the less likely you were to have antiviral suppression. So this is not something that you're gonna use in clinical practice necessarily, but I do think it's a way moving forward for some trials it might be useful to be able to measure hair levels 
and have a more accurate measure of prolonged adherence to antiviral. And this is sort of like the hemoglobin A1C of antiviral therapy, since hair levels are much more less, much less variable than blood levels. Now there was a couple of posters at last year's CROI, and I think we even presented one of them, suggesting that maybe starting treatment with an integrase inhibitor because it drops the viral load might be more likely to cause iris. This was a nice study from Africa looking at people who were randomized to start usual treatment or usual treatment plus 12 weeks of raltegravir. And they purposefully chose people with less than 100 T cells because those are the ones that are more, most likely to have an opportunistic infection. And then they randomized them, started them on usual versus usual plus raltegravir. And the table gives you the data, but I think the graph shows you that there is no difference. In this randomized study in people that should have a high risk of virus, giving people raltegravir and dropping their viral load more quickly did not increase the frequency of virus. Now still, it was only about 1,000 subjects in each arm. If it's a subtle effect, you could be missing it. But clinically, I think this pretty much puts this to rest. Another thing that was, uh, got a lot of attention was this presentation, since we're talking about integrase inhibitors, is there are some people who fail integrase therapy who insist that they're taking their treatment, but you can't detect any resistance. Now, we see this pretty much every day. This group, in vitro, was able to select for a mutation in the NEF gene, so outside the integrase portion of the genome, and this mutation made the virus resistant to dolutegravir. And then there was a report in the literature this month of a patient who had clinical failure on dolutegravir who had a similar mutation to the one that these investigators detected. There was a third poster, actually it was an oral, I'm sorry, at retrovirus with a mutation in the envelope gene that affected a broad array of antivirals including dolutegravir. So it's possible that mutations outside the enzymatic active sites could potentially impact resistance. Now this is a very preliminary finding. Uh, I think we need to see if others can replicate this, but it is scientifically very interesting. If that's the case, we might have to do more full genome sequencing instead of just sequencing the active sites. Now there's a lot of new data about end-organ disease at CROI. Now this one looked at peripheral vascular disease, not looking at cardiac or carotid. And they did this in Denmark. It was a large study with almost 1,000 HIV-positive people, and it was compared to HIV-negative people. And they showed that an abnormal ABI was twice as likely in people who had HIV even controlling for risk factors such as hypertension, smoking, elevated cholesterol. Now, a, another study looked at the presence of carotid plaque in the MAX study. And so there's got both HIV positive and HIV negative MSM that have been followed for many years. And in the MAX study, if you had any detectable plaque, there was much higher mortality in that group than men who didn't have detectable plaque. So again, data supporting that this might be associated with uh, increased risk. And then in a separate MAX study, they did sequential coronary CT angiography, 
And what they showed is that HIV-positive white males, but not black males, were more likely to have plaque progression over time. And I don't know what that means, to tell you the truth, but it is an interesting finding. Um, so if you're an HIV-positive white male, you might want to go get CT coronary angiography every five years. So we've talked before at this meeting about inflammation, you know, how inflammation is linked to cardiovascular disease. Well, the ACTG is doing a lot of studies around inflammation, and one of the ones that they recently completed was low-dose methotrexate. And it's known that people that get methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis had a lower risk of cardiac disease, so it was reasonable to study this in HIV-infected patients. And what they showed was that if you put HIV-infected patients on low-dose methotrexate, that there was no change in their endothelial function. So although there were some changes in some of the inflammatory markers, that that did not correlate with a fairly accurate predictor of the risk of cardiovascular disease. So clinical significance of this is questionable. It appeared that putting people on methotrexate may not have the beneficial effect that they were hoping to see. Uh, one study looked at people who had chronic kidney disease. Now, in general, chronic kidney disease is a bad thing to have, but nobody would really looked at a large group of HIV-infected patients before. And so they did this analysis of about 5,000 people and looked at those who had degrees of chronic kidney disease versus those who didn't. And you can see from the graph is that Poor HIV control was highly associated with the risk of death. Um, diabetes was associated with death and cardiovascular disease. And smoking was less risky than poor HIV control. I think, again, showing that, yeah, we need our patients to stop smoking, particularly if they have chronic kidney disease. But getting the HIV disease under control is the single most important variable that you can do to prevent mortality, even in those with chronic kidney disease. Now, under opportunistic infections, there was a lot of information about tuberculosis. And this one sub, uh, presentation got a lot of notice. You know, I think that most people are familiar with the current guidelines for preventing active tuberculosis among HIV-infected patients. And I've listed the options here, you know, INH, RIF-PZA, or rifampinolone for four months, which not many people use. Rifapentine is more active than rifampin. And so the thought was that you could give a shorter course of INH and rifapentine than if you used INH alone. So they randomized almost 3,000 patients who lived in a high-incidence TB setting to get nine months of INH versus INH and rifapentine in combination for one month. So you can see here that, as you would expect, both of them were highly effective. There was no increase in INH or rifampin resistance in the group that got one month of INH and rifapentine. And so based on this fairly large and well-powered study, it appears that four weeks of INH and rifapentine is now equivalent to the standard six to nine months of INH alone. And there's reason to believe that people will be more likely to comply with a four-week daily regimen than a six to nine months daily regimen. Now this study was very interesting design, which is, do you do sophisticated testing to detect TB in people who are at high risk, 
or do you just treat everybody for TB? I mean, that doesn't sound like something we do in the United States, but in a high TB prevalence area, it might make sense to just treat everybody for TB. So they use sophisticated testing, gene expert, urinary lamb, they screen people very well, and they randomize them to only get treated if they developed active TB or to get treated to treat everybody for active TB. Now, if you look at the left-hand side, what you can see is that there was a clear difference in the arms. If you treat everybody for active TB, then you have fewer cases of TB in the, uh, 20, the two years after that. But it made no difference. If you follow people closely and detect their TB, then you can treat them at that point and have the same survival, which was the primary endpoint and the graph that you can see at the right. So although there was some subtle differences between the two arms, exposing people who don't have active TB to full-dose TB treatment did not improve mortality, and so it is not recommended based on this nicely done study. Another question is, you have a pregnant woman who has a positive IGRA or PPD, and should you treat her during pregnancy for that? Um, there's reason to suspect that INH is perfectly okay in pregnant women, um, doesn't have a whole lot of teratogenicity, but this was a randomized study of daily INH for 28 weeks of pregnancy or placebo through 12 weeks postpartum. And they did a good job of screening out people with active TB. All the women were on antiretroviral therapy, so very similar to what we would see here in the United States. And it was a well-designed study with almost 1,000 women. And they had median CD4 count of almost 500. And what they showed is that there was no difference in the primary outcomes by treatment arm. Um, if you look at the safety in the left-hand side, et cetera, there's no primary outcome treatment differences. But if you look in the right-hand graph, there was a significantly increased risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes in women who got INH versus women who got placebo. And there was a lower birth weight, increased preterm delivery was not statistically significant, but just counting all adverse outcomes, there was a statistically significant difference. So it appears that although they're not sure why INH increased the adverse outcomes, that it might be an option to delay treating the latent TB until after pregnancy, based on this data. Now, cryptococcal meningitis, I mean, we're all used to using amphotericin and 5-FC and feel very comfortable with that, but in a lot of areas of the world, you may not be able to get amphotericin or 5-FC, and so there's been a push to use high doses of fluconazole. This study that was done by the ACTG looked at the WHO-recommended dose of fluconazole, which is 1,200 milligrams, and compared it to 1,600 and 2,000 milligrams. And then there was an arm that got amphotericin B. So they imported amphotericin B for the study. And so you can see the number of subjects, obviously low CD4 count, high CSF pressures, and about um, 5,000 copies of fungus per, lot, per milliliter of CSF, so high fungal burden. So they were randomized to these four arms, 
And what you can see, the red line at the bottom is the WHO recommended dose of fluconazole, the 1200. Then the green is the high dose, the 2000, and the blue is the medium dose, 1600 milligrams of fluconazole. And then the purplish color is the amphotericin B. So clearly, the higher doses of fluconazole had improved survival compared to the WHO recommended dose. And um, you can see here the treatment outcomes. Fluconazole did prolong the QTC interval, but there was, it was not dose-related. It didn't go up with each dose. However, if you looked at adverse effects, 2,000 milligrams a day, it definitely had increased risk of vomiting compared to 1,600 milligrams a day. So based on this study, if you find yourself in an area where fluconazole is the primary treatment, then you probably want to use 1,600 milligrams rather than 1,200 milligrams. Now this week's New England Journal of Medicine article looks at high-dose fluconazole plus 5-FC, and if you can get 5-FC, and add it to the fluconazole, then you're more likely to have fungal clearance than if you just use fluconazole alone. Now, another thing that caught a lot of attention a few years ago is this group that reported that using sertraline improved the outcome of treatment of cryptococcal meningitis. It was a small study, but they had a highly significant in improvement in outcome if they added sertraline onto their combination of amphotericin and fluconazole which is another common uh, regimen in Africa. So what they did is this was a double-blind study. They did frequent lumbar punctures to manage intracerebral pressure. And they looked at 460 patients and randomized them to amphotericin fluconazole or adding sertraline. And the DSMB stopped the study when there was obviously no impact of sertraline on mortality or fungal clearance. So, Although the small study was promising, a larger study showed absolutely zero benefit, and I'm no longer feeling guilty that we don't give any of our patients sertraline. Now, something else that caught some attention was this concept of treatment as prevention for hepatitis C. We're all familiar with treatment as prevention for HIV. Could you use the same concept for hepatitis C? So this cohort in Switzerland, they took about 4,000 MSMs they screened them, treated as many of the positives as would accept treatment, and then they re-screened all of the same people and looked for any new cases. So if you look at the first phase of it, what they call incident infections, in phase A they had 31 cases and in phase C they had 16 cases. But to me it seems like they're confusing prevalence with incidence because they didn't screen these people, you know, year before that, and year before that, and year before that. These were people who were found to be positive on their first screening, and it could have taken five years to get all of those cases. So although they're saying there was a pretty dramatic reduction, I think that the jury is still out. Now on chronic infections, if you screen everybody and treat everybody, as you would expect, you have a lot less infected people. But in order for treatment as prevention to work, you would have to have no new influx of patients with hepatitis C into your system. And maybe they can throw up the city walls in Switzerland, but I think we'd have a hard time in Atlanta doing that. So just some random highlights. Um, 
People are interested in telomere length because it may show that cells are less likely to become aged. And there's some data that maybe tenofovir FTC helps preserve telomere length better than an integrase inhibitor. A broadly neutralizing antibody plus a TLR7 agonist prevented viral rebound in monkeys who have SHIV, so a SIV-HIV hybrid, when antiretroviral therapy was, result, was uh, taken away. So this might be a way to treat patients and then be able to withdraw treatment, although obviously there's a lot of things that have worked in monkeys that don't work in humans. HDAC inhibitors had a lot of notice over the last several years. I think a little bit of the shine is off the apple now as we've gotten more and more experience, although obviously we don't have any um, things a lot better right now. But the romadepsin, which is a much more potent HDAC inhibitor, a single dose which lasts for several weeks of romadepsin did not induce HIV expression or um, suppress HIV. So that was sort of a bust. And then something that was really surprising, people are looking at the size of your reservoir, and in at least two studies, treating people very, very, very early on and during their HIV led to less cytotoxic T cells because they're not being exposed to the antigen as much and an increased size of the reservoir. So these are very small patient samples, but treating very, very early, although there's a lot of reason to think it might be beneficial, I think the jury's still out about whether it actually reduces the size of the reservoir. So with that, I will stop and we'll open it up for any questions. Thank you. Great, thanks, Jeff. Uh, so you're saying as far as reservoirs go, size matters, is that your point? Yeah, that's okay. the only thing in life that's that way. Um, so before, we, you can go to microphones, perfect. We'll start here and then also this question cards. And before we go any further, if there are empty seats next to you, just kind of raise your hand and folks who are looking for a seat can go. There's a bunch of, it says reserved, yeah. So there's space, and then on the front row here, it says reserve. Forget about that. Just come down to the Just front come if down you want. Sit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first question. Yes. Right. When you spoke of uh, two drug regimens, it wasn't clear whether you were talking about dolutegravir or boosted darunavir. Right. The, the, there's been there. a couple of different ones. The the studies that are ongoing that will be reported this summer is dolutegravir and 3TC. The Andy study that I showed was boosted darunavir plus 3TC. But it's a generic co-formulated ritonavir darunavir that's only available in Argentina. So. Thank you. Okay. Here's a question just to clarify. When you talked about the two-drug regimen, um, it was dolutegravir 3TC or was that darunavir ritonavir 3TC? Right. That's what I just answered. Yeah. Okay. All right. And for cryptococcal meningitis, um, you say they, their look at this was that the fluconazole 1200 seemed to have a better survival than the 1600? I didn't see it that way. No, yeah, no, the 1600 was better than the 1200. So let's dig into that a little bit. Um, you know, this, the questions that are being asked now are not, they're just having answers. It, took about 25 years because these are the same questions we were asking in 1992, yeah. especially with regard to high-dose fluconazole and flu-flu, which is fluconazole and 5-SC. 
The, the problem was tolerability, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and so you saw up to 30% right. of people having vomiting that right. they're reporting. Vomiting is obviously worse than nausea. So yeah. did they comment about yeah, that? 30, yeah, it was much higher than 30% that had nausea. Right. And so the, 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 the question is, um, how are we going to manage it? I think in the U.S., the thing to focus on is that the amphotericin still is the way to go for the first two weeks, and ideally with 5-FC if you can right. get it, right? Right. Yeah, because it's still, and then the other thing to notice on that one slide was, if you go back and look when you get your handouts, that the mortality difference between amphotericin and fluconazole confirms almost completely what was shown in the late 80s and early 90s, that amphotericin is really protecting against that first two-week uh, survival drop if you use fluconazole up front. So I think it just kind of reinforces that what we're doing is seems to right, be right. And I encourage people to look at the New England Journal of Medicine this week. The survival wasn't that great, but they weren't managing the intracranial pressure like we do here. And there was a clear advantage of fluconazole plus 5-FC versus fluconazole alone. So you'd probably want to do both. Yep. I'm having trouble reading the drug there. They're asking about another drug with crypto. Yeah, it might be mirtazapine. Does okay. mirtazapine have any role in cryptomeningitis? I have absolutely no idea, so I'd be happy to be educated. I have not seen any data on it. Okay, so the people who failed dalutegravir with resistance um, have a low viral load. In other words, um, do, is it somehow less fit? Um, it, would they have a resistant virus to die? Yeah, I mean, there's some data on fitness associated with uh, integrase resistance, and there's um, what I've seen is that it probably is less fit with if you're failing dolutegravir. But again, it's not as standardized as the other fitness assays. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I think it it still has activity. That's the thing. Yeah. It's not. I'm not sure if it's fitness or oh, there's That's some, true. Yeah, I mean, who knows? But but the bottom line is you're probably not going to want to continue that regimen if viral load is rebounded because then it's going to accrue more mutations over time and make it more difficult to treat. Um, Romadepsin, is that a one-month shot? Do you know how that Yeah, it's it? a single injection of Romadepsin, but it has a prolonged activity. And so people were thinking that it would have a fairly significant impact on inflammatory markers and on the reservoir size, and it would, it would actually stimulate HIV production, similar to what's been seen with other HDAC inhibitors. But they didn't see any increase in HIV production. So it may not be as potent as it was thought, or it may be harder to stimulate these chronically suppressed people than we thought. So what's pretty cool from, from I think, our perspective is that this meeting is planned <clears throat> at least eight months ago, um, and we try to look as best we can in a crystal ball to see what our topics ought to be. And it's amazing. We, I don't think we, we didn't predict the OI stuff, but but the opioid and the um, and the questions that have come up in the middle of uh, the Croy conference uh, really uh, are on target with what we're going to be presenting. So we're pretty excited about that. One of the things I heard in the hallway a lot was the discussion about opioid deaths, and we're going to hear about that at the last talk today, uh, it, it, that there were 64,000 roughly deaths last year attributed to opioids, and that's guesstimated to be an underestimate because I don't think it incorporates suicide and some other things that might, might be somehow associated. But when you pause, this is what I was hearing people talk about, when you pause and think about it, 
64,000 deaths in one year is more than deaths from AIDS in any year of the entire AIDS epidemic. Right? That was 54,000 or so was in 1995. That was the highest number of deaths from AIDS ever and in the U.S. And there were 64,000. And then the other thing, obviously, the entire Vietnam War, there were 58,000 people who died. And this is 64,000 people in one year. So that's, that's kind of an advertisement for Dr. Bruce to talk a little bit later today. <laughs> Some other questions? So just say no. Yeah. So are you doing the one-month TB treatment now? No, we, have, we were waiting for the results of the study. We knew it was coming, but we didn't know what the results were. I, I thought it was a well-designed, well-done study. Now, obviously, rifapintine has some drug interactions just like rifampin does, although a little bit less for certain drugs. So, you know, it may be harder if somebody's already on antiretroviral therapy, but if they aren't and they're going to delay for a month for some reason, then to me it would make a lot of sense to give them the INH and rifapintine. Right. Okay, any other questions to come to the microphone if you'd like? Okay, if not, we're going to be hitting a lot of these topics again, which is why I haven't asked Jeff about them. So the use of abacavir and cardiovascular disease and the, the notion of when do you really initiate antiretroviral therapy right away in the ER or not, we're going to talk about a little bit later. So uh, thank you very much, Jeff. That's great.